Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. This evening we will be looking at John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. Let us hear God's holy word. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us to us? Since you do these things, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise You for Your Word. We thank You for the Word of life, the Word of salvation. We thank You for that Word which Your Spirit work uses to build us up in our faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray now, Father, that by Your grace, Your Spirit would work through Your Word, causing us to pay attention, causing us to believe. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The life of any new believer is particularly difficult. They've heard all kinds of things about Christians. They considered all kinds of things about Christians before they came to saving faith. And now they're at that point when, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, they've been raised from the dead. They've been told about the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus. They've been told about the work and the life-changing work of the Spirit that's going to take place in sanctification in their lives. Perhaps they've even been told that life is going to be a little easier for them. But they soon find out that that's not the truth. In fact, Jesus had promised us that life wasn't going to be easier. He promised that there would be trouble in this life. He promised that there would be persecution in this life. That if people hated him, then they were going to hate us as well. That no servant is above his master. In Luke 12, 52, he said, Do you think I've come to bring peace on the earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus did not promise an easier life after we became Christians. And that particularly is displayed not only in our lives, but it was certainly true of believers in the first century. First century... People in Jewish homes who were breaking with the tradition of their family 
who were believing and embracing Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God. Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Messiah of God, the only Savior. Jesus as the King of Israel promised to be seated on David's throne for all eternity. They were breaking with the tradition of family. They were breaking with the tradition of culture. We know, we read times in the Gospel when parents weren't even willing to stand up for their own children, their own child who had been healed of blindness. And the parents, afraid that they're going to be thrown out of the synagogue along with their son, say, go ask him. He's of age. This was not going to be an easier life for anyone. And that's not only true for us, that's not only true in the New Testament gospel accounts that we read about, it was true in the life of Jesus as well. Here we have a record of the things that transpired very soon after the week that led up to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. His public ministry began with the changing of water into wine at a small village in Cana, in called, uh, and, and so at that Cana of Galilee, there his public ministry began. The week leading up to it begins in John chapter 1, verse 19. There we read about John the Baptist being confronted by the religious leaders from the Sanhedrin, questioning by what authority he's doing something. John, the evangelist, the writer of this gospel, is showing us that the very conflict with others that Jesus experienced during his ministry didn't start with Jesus, it started with John the Baptist, even before Jesus starts his ministry. These religious leaders are already challenging the very one who is preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. They want to know why he's baptizing. Why? Because in that day, the only people who were baptized were generally Gentile converts. And here, he was baptizing Jews. So they want to know, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet promised by Moses? He says, no. I am the one who is preparing the way in the wilderness for the coming of the Lord. That's all he'll answer them. His answers get briefer and briefer and briefer. The next day, he sees Jesus. And we're not told he spoke to him. He sees Jesus, and he says... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the third day of this week, what we find is John standing with two of his disciples, and again he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And his two disciples leave him, one of them goes to get a friend, and the three of them spend the evening and probably the night with Jesus. On the fourth day, Jesus calls another disciple, and he go gets his friend Nathaniel, and they come back, and now there are five disciples at least who are following Jesus. And then what we read is that three days pass, and we come to chapter 2, verse 1, three days later, three days after the fourth day. And what we, if we go back and we look at what had been confessed by the disciples and John the Baptist, we know John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
One of these disciples that now confesses Jesus says, you are the Son of God. Another one says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. In other words, you're the Savior who's been sent. Another one says, you are the, that's Nathaniel, says, you are the King of Israel, meaning the one who had been promised to sit on David's throne forever. And Jesus concludes chapter 1 by saying, that they will see greater things than this. Because they will see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus thereby referring back to the vision of Jacob. Is saying, I am the house of God. I am the gate of heaven. Those confessions that are made before Jesus' public ministry even begins. Are the same confessions that continue to be voiced in the church to this very day, 2,000 years later. That's amazing. And all there, before the public ministry began, that decides what the disciples believe. But then Jesus goes back up to Capernaum. He goes back up to Cana, near Capernaum, where he was from. And he's visiting, he's at least seeing his mother, who's present at a wedding. Now, we don't know why he was there, not preaching the sermon on verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. But it is significant. He goes up there. He goes with his disciples. They're sort of unexpected guests. Those who are hosting the wedding. They run out of wine. And what do we read in verse 11? of? Well, we read in verse 9. Amazing thing. That the servants knew where the wine had come from. Then we come down to verse 11 of chapter 2. And we're told that the disciples who also knew where wine came from, saw his glory and believed in him. Now we know that they already believed from earlier in chapter 1. But that faith in chapter 1 is now being built on as they see him perform that sign. Furthermore, it's confessed that they saw his glory. But what we're not told in verses 1 through 11 is that the servants who knew where the wine came from believed in other words, we have two groups of people who saw the exact same thing. One group believes, and another group doesn't. The disciples believe, and there's silence about the service. And that brings us to this passage. So Jesus spends, at the beginning of this passage, a couple of days. It's a short time. He speaks a, spends a, a couple of days with his family. Now with his mother and his brothers, somehow the brothers have joined them. They've all gone to Capernaum, a little bit of family time. And then they come up to this feast. Now what's very interesting is we know from Luke chapter 2 that Jesus' family went up to the feast every year. But we're not told here that Jesus is accompanying anyone to the feast. Why? Because from now on in the gospel... It doesn't matter who is who Jesus is with. All that matters is who is with Jesus. Jesus goes up to the feast, and it's probably the occasion of this feast and what happens here that is going to bring about the breakdown of Jesus' relationship with his brothers. In John chapter 7, verse 5, at the next feast that John records, we're told explicitly that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. 
So they mocked him. They said, oh, you've got to go up. You've got to show yourself to everybody. And then we're told by the gospel writer that they did not believe in him. Why do I suggest that it's this feast and this occasion that brings about the breakdown of that relationship? It's because of what happens at this feast. At this feast, Jesus arrives at the Passover only to find that there is the selling of animals and the exchanging, the trading of money in the courtyard of the temple. Now, up until this moment in history, or what usually happened in in, uh, Jerusalem, is that if you were going up to Jerusalem and you couldn't walk your ox all that way, that you would go to the marketplace. You would buy an ox that you would then take over for sacrifice. Or if you had coins, by the way, I know that the old story was that they didn't take the coins because the images of other emperors and that. It turns out that that's probably not right because we know that the Jews did take certain kinds of coins that did have images on them. It's more more likely that they had to exchange the currency because at the time, remember, everybody's making their own coin. And so some are more pure and some are less pure. It's like our coins. You got silver on the outside and you have copper in the middle. And so what's it really valued at? And so bringing an offering to the temple all depended on the value. And so the money exchange was taking place so that the value of what you were giving as a gift or an offering was actually accurate. But Jesus is incensed about what is going on in the temple courtyard. By the way, I know that this story sounds vaguely familiar. You're you remembering from what's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that takes place during the week just leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. This is not that same story. In that record, in that account, in that occasion, Jesus is driving out, driving out the buyers and sellers because he's calling them thieves. He's turned, they've turned the, his father's house into a house of thieves. Here, the issue isn't stealing. It's not robbing. It's not giving. The issue isn't giving the wrong kind of uh, a trade to people. Here, it's the carrying on the conducting of common business in a place that's supposed to be holy. And that's really the point that we're going to see here. And so what Jesus is, is uh, incensed about is that what should be happening in the marketplace has been moved right into the court of the temple. People who have the right have cut the right deal with perhaps the high priest are getting places to put their kiosks where they're getting the bulk of the tourists. The people from the diaspora, the people, the Jews who live far away are coming and they can't leave their animals here and so they're bringing them as an offering. Because of the Passover, the streets are jammed with people. Can you imagine trying to lead an ox through jammed streets with those great big pointy horns sticking out there? And so it's much easier to buy it right in the temple court. Jesus takes, and it was, uh, it was against Jewish law to have a weapon inside the temple area. And so he takes some cords, he wraps them together, he turns them into a whip, and he begins driving out the oxen and driving out the sheep. And then he overturns the money changers' tables. He spills out their money on the ground, 
And rather than breaking apart the dove cages, he just tells the dove sellers to get their cages out of there. Because they have made his father's house into a, a place of business. In all of our lives, we struggle with how we're going to live our Christian life. We figure out things about how we're going to live this way or that way when we visit our unbelieving relatives. We figure out what we're going to do when they turn on a movie that we don't want our kids to see. We figure out how we're going to celebrate the Lord's Day when we're there and what church we're going to worship at. We figure out what we're going to do around the table when it comes time to pray that the meal is blessed. We figure out how to work those things out. But it's always a struggle. The struggle here in this passage isn't a struggle over trying to figure out how we're going to get along with our unbelieving relatives, but it is a situation in which it is going to cause alienation between Jesus and his brothers. Why? Because what we see here is that when he drives it out, what drives out those animals, and when he overturns those tables, his disciples are reminded of the scriptures. Their already existing faith in Jesus causes them to remember Psalm 69, verse 9, which is quoted in this passage. But for a second, I want to read you that passage in the context of the verse before it. Psalm 69, verses 8 and 9. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The context of that verse which they realize is true of Jesus is a verse in which David finds himself alienated from everyone around him because even though he's in the midst of those who call themselves believers, they consider themselves faithful Jews, they consider themselves abiding to God's word, he's finding that they do not have the same desire to serve God that he does. Even his own brothers have turned against him. And that's the context of that passage which they remember at this time. In verses 18 through 19, we go on to see that there is a... a now there's going to be a confrontation. The same kind sorts of people who had gone to question John the Baptist when he was baptizing at the Jordan and asking him by what authority he was doing that, why he was doing that, are now going to ask Jesus who gave him authority. What sign do you show up to us since you do these things? Now they don't question here, it's interesting, they don't question the possibility that he has authority to do this. Because these are people who believe in the supernatural. They know it's very possible that this is a prophet. But they want, if he is a prophet, he really does have authority from God. After all, he's calling it his father's house. Then they want to know what that authority is. And so that's what they ask him about. And after all, think of it from their perspective. If 
This buying and selling is because of a money-related issue and arrangement with Caiaphas, the high priest, then they need to explain why the money train has just stopped on this day. But Jesus' answer, which seems so different than any kind of thing that they were looking for, they're looking for some, they're seeing a sign. His, his driving out those animals is the sign. But rather than recognizing that, they're asking for something more because of the unbelief of their hearts. And so his response is, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This is where those words that are going to be used two year, more than two years later at his trial come from. They will remember what he said on this occasion. Now think about that. At his trial in the week leading up to his crucifixion, when they have that trial and they ask what could be, he could be accused of, Nobody can come up with anything except the words they had spoken over two years before on this occasion. What a righteous life. They can't say anything about his life except that he said this. And they can't even agree because it's been two years. They can't even agree exactly on what he had said. But he was speaking about the destruction of his own body and his resurrection. Something that was misunderstood till the day of his trial and would not be understood until after his resurrection when his disciples remember it. They speak about the 46 years. Here they are all proud. Here they are all zealous to maintain this temple that has been built by an unbelieving, non-Jewish king, Herod. It's taken 46 years and it's still not done, by the way, at the time of this, that this is said. And yet here, the one who is the very temple of God is standing in their midst. Here, the very God whose temple this is, is standing in their very midst. But we read that he was speaking about the temple of his body, and therefore when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And what's it conclude with saying? They believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. Do you see what that is for us? The Old and New Testaments. The Scriptures, the Old Testaments, and the word that Jesus said, the New Testament. This is the Bible for us. Their faith was our faith. Our faith is theirs. And just as they struggled in their relationships with unbelieving relatives, so do we. But you see, the point here is the problem that, was, that Jesus is addressing is the fact that that which is holy is being treated as common. Now, common's not the same as unholy. It's not the same as being unclean. It's just the regular stage of our life. It's the life. Their lives, their, their temple life was divided between what happened in the temple area and what happened outside the temple area. You know that the priests were not allowed to wear the same clothes in the temple area that they wore outside the temple area. And vice versa. They couldn't wear common clothes into the temple area. There had to be a strict line. You have a common part of your life. You have a holy part of your life. And sadly for us... That's too often how we think and too often how we try to live. 
We think that there's this time that belongs to God and we have to act a certain way. We have to speak a certain way. We should be thinking about a certain way. And then there's this other time when we get to think and watch and do whatever we want to say and whatever we think we do. We know it can't be sin. We've got to stay away from that. We understand that. But we think that there's this common time of our life. You know, eventually a new Christian figures out where they're supposed to worship, I said. They figure out how to live with the unbelievers. But a lot of times we don't figure out how to be a people who are holy all the time. And we have been called to be a people who are holy all the time. Why are we to be holy? We're told that we're to be holy because He is holy because Christ is the temple of God and because we who are in Christ have been set apart and he has made us into his holy temple, the holy temple of his Holy Spirit. He has chosen you to live in you and for you and to you to live in him. He lives in you so that you will be able to live with him forever. And that means that since he is a holy God, you must be holy dwelling places. The struggle to live for Christ among those who do not, will be a challenge until the day we enter glory. We will be tempted to compromise. We will be tempted to automatically choose what is most convenient. Hey, face it! You know what? Buying and selling in the temple where he was convenient! It was convenient. It made life easy. Honey, I know it's going to cost us a few more dollars, but let's wait till we get to the temple to buy that sheep. Or to buy that dove. Let's wait till we get there. This, there are too many people. We have to wait in a too long of a line. Let's wait till we get up there. Then we'll take care of it. But in the face of temptations, we need to remember the scriptures and Jesus' words to us that he has made us holy and therefore we must be as zealous for the holiness of our relationship to him as he is zealous for the holy ship, for, for the holiness of his relationship to us. Because by his grace, he has made his father our father and his father's house our father's house. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he has done for us. We thank you for his work in us. We thank you for the zeal that we see that he had for the holiness of that building, a building which pointed to us, the dwelling places of the Holy Spirit. And if he was driving out that which is common from that building made by an unbelieving Gentile king, because it, was, because it was at least used as his father's house. How much more should we pray for the Holy Spirit to drive out that which is common in us? Who are living temples of the living Holy Spirit. 
Here, Father, we pray that you would not only make us a people who abstain from sin, who seek to live our lives separately from sin. We pray, Father, that you would make us a people who are zealous to be holy, dedicated, set apart to God in everything we think, do, and say. Reminded every day that you live in us by the by your Holy Spirit in His presence. Father, Jesus, we thank you that you have made your Father our Father. Jesus, we thank you that you have made your Father's house our house. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.